You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Well, this morning we'll be continuing our series in the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And as we're looking at this section of Scripture, I've titled this Faith and Trust. And what we're looking at here is Habakkuk wrestling with this idea of faith and trust. And as we begin, I would simply ask you this question. Have you ever in your life just asked in your mind or out loud, what are you doing, God? Have you ever wondered out loud or in your mind, God, is this even fair? Do you even care about the things that are happening in my life or in the world? I think if we would be honest with one another in those times of distress and difficulty, we've asked those same questions. We've asked those questions of God. God, how is this fair? How can this be right? How can you, a holy, perfect God, allow these things to happen? You know, I know that we've asked that because I myself have asked those same questions. You know, just a few short years ago, my mother passed away very unexpectedly. You know, I got a call just before Christmas on a Sunday morning that she was gone. And here we are just wrestling with the aftermath immediately afterwards. And in my heart and my mind, I was asking, God, what are you doing? What is your plan in this? Like if there is a list of people that you could, that I think the world would be better if you took them from, and I could give you a different list, but she wouldn't be on it. And in those moments, it was simply a question of God. How is this fair? How is this right? I know that you have asked those same questions as well. You've experienced pain. You've experienced heartbreak. You've experienced grief that has led you down to ask these questions, to look at God and go, how is this fair? Why does this make any sense to be a part of your plan? What is it that you are doing? Knowing that we've all asked this very same question. What is our response? What are we supposed to do? Knowing that we look at these plans, we look at these things the Lord's doing, and we say, why? How? You see, the problem we have in these moments is that when we don't understand what God is doing, we don't understand His plan, we find it really hard to trust Him, don't we? When we don't know what God's trying to do, it's really hard to say, I trust you, Lord. It's not a new problem, if we can be honest. As we look through human history, even going back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's core problem was that they didn't trust God. That's why Satan in his little serpent form wiggled over and said, but did God really say that? And Adam and Eve said, well, I don't know. Can we trust this God who's created us, who we've known for a couple of days? We've repeated the same cycle over and over in our lives, simply asking the question, if we don't know the whole picture, how can we trust God? Habakkuk's in that same boat. Habakkuk's in that same boat. He's caught in the same problem in the midst of this passage we're looking at. And he's asking the question, God, how can I trust you? What's our solution? 
How do we get out of repeating this problem? How do we fight our way through this challenge of trying to trust God when we don't fully understand all that he's doing? Well, I want you to write this down. It's our bottom line for today. This is how. You see, faith is not blindly trusting. It's trusting in the personal character of God. We're not trusting in this vague entity in the sky. We're not trusting in this this blurry picture of a God who might love us. We are trusting in the personal character of God that has been revealed to us through Christ Jesus. We can have faith because we can trust in who God is even when we don't know the whole plan. This is what Habakkuk is wrestling with. This is what he's struggling with. If you look to the passage, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17. And I want you to just look at verse 12 with me here. Verse 12 reads this. Are you not from everlasting, O my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. As we pick up here in this passage, we've got to get our bearings a little bit from last week. Habakkuk starting to deal with the answer that God provided him last week. If you remember the outline so far, we have hit verses 1 through 4, and that's a complaint from Habakkuk. He's going, God, why are you doing these terrible things to your people? And then God answers him in 5 through 11, and he explains what he is doing. And his plan is is that the people of Judah have gone wayward. They've gone away from him. And he's saying, I'm going to make sure they come back to me. There's going to be a punishment. I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come punish the people of Israel. And by the way, as they go through this, they'll return back to me, and I'll restore them to the promised land. I'll rebuild the temple. I'll make all things right again, but first you've got to go through this hard moment. That's the answer that Habakkuk gets. and It's the equivalent of God perhaps speaking to us in the modern church and saying, hey, things aren't going great here in the U.S., and so I'm going to fix everything, but the way I'm going to fix it is I'm going to let China or Russia come through and sweep away your country, and then... I'm going to restore things the way they need to be. Our response would be like Habakkuk. Lord, have you lost your mind and can I help you find it? Are you kidding me? He doesn't understand God's plan. He doesn't understand God's will. And he's looking at God going, well, what is it that you're going to do here? Like truly, how does this make sense? And he begins to think very deeply about it. And we get some of the the deepness of his writing here in verse 12. Now, in your Bible, um, it may say that this is Habakkuk's second complaint. And it, it is, but I think it's a little unfair to start saying the whole thing is a complaint. Because Habakkuk is doing, like us, the same thing we do when we get in conflict and difficulty. We get in times where we don't know what to do, where we have uncertainty. What is it that we do? We take a step back and we begin to think about it. We think about what we know so that we might resolve our conflict and problem. Well, Habakkuk begins to think about what he knows here in verse 12. He starts off with proclaiming right here in the first line that God is eternal and everlasting. If you happen to look back at verse 11, you can see that, that 
God is telling Habakkuk that when the Chaldeans, when the Babylonians come in and sweep over his nation, that they're going to rejoice and they're going to offer praise to their God, lowercase g. They're going to say, look at how great our God is. Look at what he has done. And they're going to rejoice in their victory. Yet Habakkuk looks at that and goes, but their God is not like my God, right? Their God cannot be like my God. Why? Because his God, the God of the Israelites, the God of mankind, is eternal and everlasting. I recognize that we live in a world that's a little topsy-turvy right now. We live in difficult economic times. We live in a time strife with conflict and difficulty. I mean, it's a world that brings distress, it seems, every week about new news that's not encouraging, things that are depressing, just hard things that we continue to see week after week after week. Yet, isn't there something that's quite comforting about knowing that there is a God who is eternal? That these things that are happening, they're but a blink of an eye before him. This is a God who has been here before the foundations of the earth and who will be here long after the earth may pass. God existed before history even started. In fact, he's the one who began history by uttering these words, let there be light. This is good news because he reigns in eternity outside of time. He is not subject to history. He creates history. Habakkuk doesn't have a lot of certainty right now, but there's one thing that he knows he can be sure of right off the bat. That God is eternal and he's never going to stop being God. He's supporting these claims with the following words where he says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. This phrasing, O Lord, is not just a phrase of worship. He's using the word in Hebrew, which means Yahweh. He's proclaiming that my Lord, the great I am, the one who's existed before the heavens and the earth, this God, this God is the God I serve. He's existed before all creation. That's important because it shows us that God does not have to have us. He's not codependent upon us. Our God is independent. This is good news for us because our God's not sitting here taking all in and going, my gosh, I wonder what they're going to do. You see, he looks at all this turmoil and strife in our life and recognizes that he can do what he needs to do. How is that good news for us? I mean, honestly, you might hear that and you think, well, okay, God's independent. He's not looking at these things and he's not looking at us as a way like, oh, he has to have us. He has to have things work out in a certain way for us. You see, it's good news because we can count on God doing God things rather than panicking over situations. Isn't it so hard when conflict comes, when challenges come to just simply do the right thing? To make a right choice. God's not panicking when things go wrong because it's a part of his sovereign plan somehow, some way. It means that we can trust that he is the holy one who will accomplish his holy task. God has a plan. We looked at that last week that God has a sovereign plan. 
We don't perhaps know every nook and cranny of this plan. We haven't explored every part of it, but we know he has a plan and a purpose. And his purpose, his plan will be accomplished. It means that God will only do things that are in line with his character. This is good news because it ultimately means that God is trustworthy. It means that we can count on God to do the right things when it matters. God is perhaps not predictable, but he is trustworthy. We can rest in this assurance that when we look at the scriptures, our God is the same yesterday as today as he will be in the future. This is good news for us because we know we can trust in a God who is unchanging. Now, we've all worked with people or lived with people or been in contact with people who we can generously describe as being a little flaky, unreliable. You know, even at my job at Charleston Southern, there's sometimes where you send an email to someone and you know you've got to CC someone who's an adult or a supervisor because if you don't, it ain't getting done. You've worked with those people. You've lived with those people. Our God is not like that. You don't have to CC the big boss to make sure things get done. You simply go to him and you know that he's heard you and he will do something with your plea and with your concerns. This is good news because God is trustworthy for us. Now I want to take a moment and I know we see this, we shall not die right there. And I want to skip that for a moment and look at those last two lines there. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Just cutting right to the chase, Habakkuk is looking at this, and he's going, God, you're almighty, and you're all-powerful. Only you could take something as heinous as the Babylonians and use it for good. Only you can direct this evil for good. You have to be all-powerful. You have to be almighty. You have to be the one who has all power and authority because only you could take what is evil and turn it to be something that is good for your people. God is in control. And if he's in control, if he's in control, that means when he is doing something, that it is the right thing to do. I want to take a step back and I want to look at that again, that God is in control. And that means if he is doing something, then that is the right thing to do. He is almighty. He is all powerful. And we have to recognize that nothing happens in this world that he doesn't allow to start. He works things together for our good and his glory. See, God is stronger than in Chaldeans. He's stronger than their lowercase g God. He is greater than all the things that Habakkuk and his people are facing. And Habakkuk is drawing comfort by this truth that his God is eternal, that his God is holy and righteous, that his God is existing outside of creation. He's an independent God. He's resting in his fact that his God is almighty and all-powerful. His God can do anything he chooses to do. And it's those truths that take us back to that center line. We shall not die. 
Habakkuk is proclaiming that God is faithful. God is a promise keeper to his people. As we study the scriptures, God has fulfilled every promise that he has made to his people. This goes back even to the earliest days in the people of Israel. See, God had made a promise to Habakkuk's people many years ago. This was during the time of Abraham, back at the very beginning of the story of the Bible. And in this time, he makes a promise to Abraham that through Abraham, I will see a great nation, a great people formed. And through this people, my line will continue. Through this people, peace will come. Through this people, righteousness will reign. Through this people, the world will know the great I am. This people will be innumerable. It will be as many as the sand on the shore of the sea. Many, many people will be a part of this family. You see, when Habakkuk write these words, we shall not die, He's not trying to convince himself of this truth. He is assured that this promise that God has made to his people will be kept. This promise that he made to Abraham can best be summed up as, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what the covenant requires. That I will be their God and they will be my people. And though they will be wayward, he knows they'll be wayward. And he trusts that he will bring them back to him. Why is that important? It's in the warm embrace of this truth. Of knowing that God is all-powerful. Knowing that God is eternal. Knowing that God is holy and righteous. Of knowing that God is who he says he is. It's in the warm embrace of this truth that Habakkuk can proclaim, we will not die. I mean, just look at that phrase sandwiched between those truths. It's almost as if Habakkuk couldn't write those words until he had filled in the blanks that God is who he says he is. Habakkuk and the people of the Old Testament, they recognized this truth. They thrived on this truth that God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. He is a promise keeper. He is one who will see it through to the end. And we have that same hope. We have that same promise made to us. You see, God has kept his covenant with his people and Through his grace and mercy, he has even extended it to us, the Gentiles, through Jesus. You see, he wasn't content just to have this promised people. He wanted many people to be a part of his people. You see, Jesus is at the center of the new covenant for us. He's at the very heart of it. This is the covenant that God has proclaimed to the world. This is God telling the world through Jesus I will be their God and they will be my people. See, the old covenant, the old covenant was sealed with the blood of animals. The old covenant was sealed with blood. The new covenant is sealed with blood. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of God himself, Jesus Christ. This is the perfect picture of God's love and his commitment to keep his promise because he said that he would make things right one day. And he sent Jesus to bear the weight of our sin and shame upon the cross so that he might make things right one day. 
I encourage you to look at Hebrews chapter 10 when you get a moment this week. Really kind of summarizes and talks through this new covenant that is being fulfilled through the blood of Jesus. But there's one verse in there that draws our attention in verse 14. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those that are called into the family of God, Jesus has made a sacrifice once and for all to keep that promise that God made to Abraham thousands of years ago that he would have his chosen people for a price. In the Old Testament, that price was the blood of animals. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that price is the blood of God himself. Isn't this good news that God is so committed to being who he is and keeping his promises that he would even send his own son to bear the weight of our sin and shame, to die for us so that he could keep his promise? You see, our faith, our trust in God is not founded upon positive thoughts It's not founded upon this vague theological system. No, it's founded upon the personal character of God. We can have faith because we know God is who he says he is when he proclaims these words to his people. We can trust, we can have faith because God is who he says he is. Isn't this good news for us? It is. It is indeed good news for us. That's the very core part of the gospel. That's the central message. And even as we look at this, Habakkuk seems to be comforted by this truth of who God is. But he's still having some trouble understanding God's plan. Some might say here as he goes into his complaint in the following verses that he's just had this moment of praise and he's being a bit faithless here. But I would argue that he is being very faithful. You see, Anselm was a theologian that lived about a thousand years ago, and he wrote that the study of God is faith-seeking understanding. Habakkuk's got faith. He is trusting in the personal character of God. He is trusting that God is who he says he is. Now he's looking around going, all right, God, if you are who you say you are, then I want to understand what you're doing. If this is a part of your plan and you are consistent, you are righteous, you are holy, then what are you doing in this world? Habakkuk has faith, but he just doesn't understand the rest of the plan. You see, that takes us into the remainder of the verses here, 13 through 17. And I know some of you are feeling a little terror that, hey, we spent 20 minutes on one verse. I promise you, we're going to be okay. I'm going to cut that down in the remaining verses. Look with me at verse 13 there. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them out with a hook. He drags them out with his net He gathered them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. 
Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Here we get into a little bit of a complaint from Habakkuk. You see, he's saying, I'm choosing to trust God. I'm choosing to trust in Him. But I don't understand why God would use such evil, wicked people to accomplish His will. You know, he's looking out at the world and he's looking at the Chaldeans who are going to come and wipe away Judah. And he's saying, God, I know that we're bad, okay? I know that we've been a little wayward. I know that we deserve some punishment. But have you looked over there and seen how terrible these guys are? I mean, we're bad, but they're worse, right? What, what are you going to do? Have you, are you going to use this evil people to wipe away a people that, well, we're not great, but we're not as evil as them, right? That's a fair complaint. I mean, it is. He's asking the same question we're asking. Why are you using these evil people? We've experienced those same difficulties that Habakkuk's experienced. Perhaps not at the level he's going through it now, but we've all seen it where you see people who are not good people prosper in your workplace. We see it around our country in politics where people who just aren't great people seem to prosper and get all the power and authority. We just look at the world and we see people who aren't willing to play fair get ahead. And we're kind of like Habakkuk. We're going, God, have you seen how terrible they are? I mean, really, why would you let them get ahead of me? We've had those same complaints and criticisms. And we're asking, how could any one of these people, how could any of them stand in judgment of us? How could God use this evil people? How could God use evil people at all in his grand plan? It's a great question. And I'll just be honest with you. I don't really know how God does it. I don't know how he uses evil people in his plan. But what I do know is that he does it all the time. He uses people who are unworthy of his grace and mercy on an everyday basis. You might say, Walter, that's crazy. How, how could a holy God use evil, sinful people on a daily basis to do His work? Like, that makes no sense. Well, I know He does that because He uses you and I every day to accomplish His grace, His mercy, and His will. Just simply consider you and I and who we are in our hearts and our minds. Every time God is using us, He is using an unholy instrument. Yes, I recognize that if we trust in Jesus, we have been made righteous. We are declared innocent of our sins. But what is it do we do after that? Well, I'll let you in on a secret. You might know this already, but um, I'm not perfect. I don't know if you knew that. And I do this thing called sin once in a blue moon. I, I'll let you in on a secret that I, I don't think you know I know, but you are not perfect either. You too do this thing called sin once in a blue moon. And maybe you're a super Christian and you're going to sit here and say, well, I never sin. Well, you're a liar, so we know you're a sinner. Like, we know that's true, okay? Here's just the reality of it. 
you and I are not perfect. We don't have it all together. And if God was going to limit himself to just using holy, perfect people as his instruments, he wouldn't have a very large group of people to work with in this world, would he? Frankly, he wouldn't have anybody at all to work with because the only one who's walked this earth, who's been perfect and righteous and holy, is Jesus himself. And so somehow, some way, God chooses to use holy, broken people in the hands of the Redeemer as his instruments to perform miracles, to do things like proclaim the good news of the gospel, to serve the least of these, to do the incredible things he does around the world. Habakkuk looks at this and he recognizes that God's holy and frankly he knows that there are not a lot of options to deal with his people. And he still is wondering why are you using the Chaldeans this way? Why are you going to let them come through and seemingly prosper in the midst of our suffering? You know that's what that last section is where they're casting out their dragnets like they're fishermen. He sees the Chaldeans coming and they are one of the most successful groups of warriors in the Middle East in this time. They're coming in and they're taking away everything. They can come pillage your town. They'll take anything they want because they are powerful. And they're sweeping across the land like fishermen casting nets out, scooping up anything they can when they're in the water. He says, their dragnets are full. They have abundance, Lord. They have everything they could possibly want. And they're praising their God. They're celebrating their power. And you're using these people to come to us. He simply looks at it and he says, this bothers me. This is a problem. Why are you going to use them to accomplish your will? That's what verse 17 is about. He's saying, is he, that is the Chaldeans, are they going to keep on emptying their net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He's saying, God, is your plan to let the Chaldeans rule forever? Like, are they going to sweep over this? Are they going to take everything? Are they going to get what's coming to them is what he's asking. You see, God begins to answer Habakkuk in the next chapter, and I'm not going to dig into that today, but we do recognize this truth. He's got an answer already. God has already given him an answer. He knows the Chaldeans won't get away with it. They're going to be punished. We see that they get swept away in the centuries to follow. Have you spent any time with a Chaldean? No, because they're all dead. God got eternal vengeance. He won that conflict. You've never met a Chaldean because they're gone as a people. You and I feel the same way when we see evil happen in the world. When we see evil people prospering, we want vengeance. We want righteousness to win. When we see injustice, we simply recognize that this is not right and things should be better. We look at these things and we say, God, will they ever get better? Because that's our core problem here. We simply say, God, if you are who you say you are, then we think things should be better in this world. But we can rest easy with this promise from God. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelations, 
God tells us very clearly that one day Jesus will return. He'll come back to end sin and death. He'll come back to kill Satan and throw him into a lake of fire. He comes back to reign over his people. He comes back to ensure that for all eternity, we are his. See, Habakkuk's answer is this. I don't understand all the problems in the world. I don't understand your plan even, Lord. But I understand you. I know who you are, Lord. And I can rest assured that if you are who you say you are, then it's going to work out. I don't know how it's all going to come out, but I know one thing. Lord, you do not make mistakes. And you do not do anything wrong. And so if you're doing this, Lord, if this is your plan, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know that you are the right man to be in charge. I know that if you are who you say you are, this plan will come together for my good and your glory. See, this takes us back to our bottom line. That faith is not blindly trusting. It's trusting in the personal character of God. I don't know where you're at today in your journey with Christ and the struggles you're experiencing and the hardships you're facing. Maybe you're seeing evil prosper in your life. Maybe you're just in a season of darkness and despair. Maybe you're wailing into the darkness going, God, do you hear me? Are you even there? The answer, the solution for you is not to just grit it out and hope it gets better. It's not to try harder. It's not that you're going to figure your way out of this. It's that you're going to trust in the personal character of God. You're going to trust in His revealed grace and mercy through His Son, Jesus. The only way forward is through the cross. And so today, if you're like me, and you're broken, and you're tired, you look at the world and you wonder why evil happens, what you and I need is a dose of the grace of God is a reminder to trust in who God is and what He's done for His people. And so today, you have the opportunity to trust in Him. You have the opportunity to look to the risen Savior and lay down your burdens, your struggles, your difficulties, and look to Him for forgiveness, for grace, and for peace. And so today, my hope and my prayer is that you would trust in Jesus for all eternity. I'll be right up here after we pray, and I would love to hear what the Lord's doing in your life. I would love to hear how we can pray for you, how we can walk with you. I would love to hear what Jesus has done to transform your life. If I may, I want to pray for us and We'll together sing one final song, rejoicing in God's grace and mercy today. If you would, would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are grateful for you. 
we're thankful that your steadfast love has never failed us. We're thankful that you are a promise-keeping God who has fulfilled every promise he has made to his people. We rest in this beautiful truth that you are a God who is focused on keeping his word. And so, Lord, today, as we come to you, we're, in, we're people in desperate need of your grace and mercy. We're a people who's in desperate need of seeing your majesty on display. So, Father, today, would you lead us to trust in who you are? Would you lead us to trust in you? I know we don't know all the answers. I know we don't perhaps understand the plan. I know that we don't see everything coming before us. But, Lord, I know you. And I know this truth that you will be with me always. So, Lord, even though I don't know the path forward, I know that you do, and you'll walk with me through it all. So, Father, let us rest in this truth, that we know the very God of the universe in a personal way, and we can rest in this revealed character of God, that you are who you say you are. So, Lord, bless us with your presence. Let us see you for who you really are, all the grace and mercy you have to offer us. And let us sing loudly and clearly of what you have done in our lives. Father, we're thankful for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.